welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists, Drs. Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Lauschus, and we're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. Note, the discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. And now, on with the show. All right, welcome back. We're the Accelerators Podcast. This is Matt Spraker. I'm one of the co-hosts. Uh, and we have a great uh, lineup today for our discussion. So I have a couple of uh, guest co-hosts coming back uh, with me today from a prior episode. We have uh, Julie and Katie. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, my name is Julie Johnson, and I am a sarcoma patient. I'm located in St. Louis, Missouri. And I was on an episode of The Accelerators where we talked about clinical trials. And I'm uh, Katie Coleman. I have a uh, rare stage four kidney cancer and was on the same episode with Julia a couple weeks ago. Yeah, we had such great discussion. We wanted to come back and dive into a couple of other topics in more detail. And today we'll be focusing on patient education. I'm very excited to have our guest on to talk about that today. Uh, David, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So thanks for having me on, Matt. I'm excited to chat with you guys. I'm David Grew. I'm a radiation oncologist. I practice in Hartford, Connecticut, in a private practice at a Yale affiliate cancer center. And um, I also am the founder of a company called Primer, which produces patient education content, mostly focusing on clinical trials. Yeah, I'm super excited to kind of dive into this topic because I've been very interested in it for a long time. Um, when I actually uh, first got to my first faculty job at WashU, I we talked about doing a quality study of looking at the process of informed consent for clinical trials because I think it's an area where uh, you know, I think there's a lot of interest there. Um, and so to be specific today, I think what I'm most interested in uh, discussing is is patient education and informed consent for clinical trials, but then also just more generally, as we're starting to do more and more education kind of remotely and having using technology to make some of these new materials. And on the prior episode we did, I thought, Julie and Katie, you had some really nice uh, comments just about patient education. We talked about our love of video, um, which I think, you know, David, you were probably happy to hear because I know that you're doing a lot of work in that space. And so um, that, you know, that's, that was sort of the motivation for, for doing this show. Um, so just to give a little bit of quick background, uh, I think the first thing that I was hoping we could chat about was just the process of informing patients about a trial. Uh, that typically happens in clinic, I know for me, where if I have someone come in for a new visit and they might be eligible, after we get all of the other discussion done, we might talk about that trial. And at least in my practice, it's usually me just kind of explaining that with or without some materials. So um, usually without, because <laughs> they're not as readily available. Uh, and then they might then go on and have an informed, a more thorough informed consent discussion with a, a trial coordinator that kind of goes through all the paperwork and things like that. Um, so I'm interested in that approach and, and kind of what how that could be optimized. Um, and then I think a lot of people believe and have published that there's that one of the barriers to enrollment of clinical trials is consent and education, because I think if people don't understand what the point of the trial is, it's hard to convince someone to go ahead and enroll on it. So I don't know, David, if you can speak a little bit about primer and what you guys are working on and how that fits into that topic. And then we can kind of just go from there maybe. Sure. Yeah. So uh, just in the way of background, I really started with creating content during kind of early days of COVID. We had patients, I'm sure you guys both can relate to this where, you know, in the early days of COVID, there was a no visitor policy. So even patients with a new diagnosis of cancer were coming into clinic alone. And for my patients, especially my elderly patients, just completely overwhelmed with the information, um, regardless of education and background and everything. So I I typically would draw out with pen and paper right there on the exam table or on the back of a piece of paper I had on my clipboard in, in the clinic, just sketch out the anatomy so that patients could understand just in a basic way, like this is where your cancer started. We can see on the scan, it's spread to these areas. And so we would kind of together derive the treatment based on these simple images. And then when patients started asking me if they could keep those pieces of paper and bring that home because they wanted to explain it to their family when they got home, that's when I kind of had this idea to capture these common explanations in the form of 
simple images with narration that we could start to share with patients at scale. So I just went bonkers with that. I created like 50 videos over the course of like eight or nine months um, for a variety of cancer topics, just general patient education stuff with simple images and narration, Um, but had some discussions with friends who are PIs on trials who were expressing the difficulty, Matt, that you were just explaining where you you are going to consent a patient to a trial and you maybe you don't have time to do it the way that you'd like to, or um, there just isn't time built into your clinic day, or it's a very complex trial. Perhaps even if it's not your trial, you're not sure of the best way to explain it. For all these reasons, maybe using some scalable digital content would be useful. And that's when the sort of the pivot of primer from general patient education to really trying to work on this problem of patient education for clinical trials uh, came about. So I'll stop there, see if um, Julie or Katie, if you guys, I know Julie, on the last episode, you actually mentioned, I think on a trial that you participated in, you had experienced quite a bit of video engagement. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that experience in some more detail. I was curious to hear how that went. Yeah, sure. So that, I'll call it a study. um, And that was not related to my cancer diagnosis. Um, It was from the same hospital where I was receiving treatment on my clinical trial. And they asked me if I wanted to participate in in another study uh, that was a little bit more generic in nature. And after I agreed, or expressed interest, at least, in hearing more about what they were studying, um, they sent me a series of videos that broke down um, that broke down the study in a little bit more detail. And uh, they were, you know, a minute to two minutes long, and there were probably fifteen or twenty of these videos. And you could watch them. However, you know, in in whatever sequence, there was a sequence where you you had to follow, but uh, you didn't have to sit and watch them all at once. And there was a basically a um, timeline that showed you um, how many videos you had left to watch and, you know, how many more you had to go. And at the end, they asked you um, to, you, you had the option of also reading the same script that was being shown to you in the video. And then afterwards, you actually had to take a quiz on after each of the videos to um, make sure that you were taking away key pieces of information before you consented for the trial. And once you took the quiz, if you answered all of those questions correctly, then you were able to officially uh, consent for the study. That's really interesting. So did, was that through an app that they had created or were these just coming to you as a text message? How was it delivered to you? So it was an app um, and it's called uh, All of Us is the study name. And um, they're basically trying to collect medical records from like a million people um, and study different. Um, they're studying a, a range of, of different health metrics and characteristics. Um, but yeah, the study is called All of Us. And so they they had an app. You didn't have to use the app. You could have used email and they could continue to email you um, information as you progressed through the registration process. It's interesting they quizzed you and like, um, you know, kind of required that to sort of proceed on in the process because uh, that's just, I mean, I don't, I mean, I typically, it's very classic to do informed consents or explain things. And then if people do a lot of times in medical school, they'll call it a teach back, uh, or that's like a classic kind of teacher method where you have the person kind of re-explain it back to you. And I'll do that variably, but I think that that's, it, it is a nice way to check to make sure that things are actually being communicated well, you know? And the, the teach back method was similar to what I was familiar with, with my oncology clinical trial that, you know, we went through, the informed consent. And then afterwards I was asked, can you tell me what the study is about and what we're trying to learn? And so, you know, I was able to answer those questions, but um, yeah, I felt like as a patient, at least it was a much more engaging process to, to one, have the option to either watch or to read. So I was able to choose the method that worked best for my learning style. Um, And then 
you know, have the option to split, to split up the consent across multiple sessions if I wanted. Um, and then certainly, you know, knowing that I absorbed the right content uh, was important for me too. And I know, Katie, you talked last time about um, that you had participated in a couple of observational studies or there was a v- device trial. You didn't have any experience with video, though, with, with kind of being taught. No, all mine were in all the trials that I, well, the device trial, I was um, at the NIH in person, but um, all of the other uh, like observational trials that I'm in, I was just sent uh, like information about them and then like a really quick phone call, um, but no video content at all. Katie, I'm curious, like, how did you seek information? I'm sure just based on your conversation you guys had last time, you're pretty sophisticated shopper, it seems. So I'm just curious, like, how did you source, you clearly went elsewhere to source information. And how did you, what was your process for that? And how did you find information that was both credible, but also applicable to your situation? Because that's not easy. Yeah, um, it was definitely difficult, especially in my my situation. Um, but I am a software engineer, so I, a lot of ways I like to describe software engineers are we're just professional Googlers. <laughs> we spend a lot of time uh, looking information up. And so I um, just lean pretty heavily on on those skills to be able to try to find um, trials for other non-clear cell um, kidney cancers. And I kind of just slowly learned by just reading different trials, watching old conferences, videos that were posted, uh, talking about those trials, talking just in general about kidney cancers that I could slowly learn over time. Um, I visited clinicaltrials.gov several times, but didn't find it super helpful, (laughs) Um, especially without that base knowledge at the beginning to really kind of understand the terms and know what they were talking about. But yeah, it was kind of my process, just kind of a lot of Googling and then diving into different patient resources, either websites um, from kidney cancer organizations or just kind of like searching YouTube for old conferences and stuff like that. Yeah, we talked a little last time about um, just about video as being kind of a very desirable way to sort of communicate it. I know, Julie, you kind of, you pointed out that in your experience, they did share both the written as well, because I know there's that kind of classic idea that people learn in different ways. But I think um, video is is so compelling to me because we sort of mentioned this last time. I think people are just getting more and more used to kind of getting the information that way. Um, and so I don't know if if you feel like it's better or worse or if, you know, Julie, I mean, you probably have the most ability to directly compare methods with, you know, being taught other other ways. Um, is, it, is there something about video that's that's special or is it just the way everything's moving and that's, you know. I mean, I can I can speak to what works for me, and I tend to be be more of a visual learner, um, or you know, I tend to prefer to to watch content. Um, and so, for me, I, I think it was a couple things. One, it was that the content could be consumed on my schedule, and it was bite sized pieces of information. So I I'm gonna contrast that to when I was enrolling. Uh, or doing informed consent for my clinical trial, where a coordinator read me a, I don't know, 40, 50 page document, and it took about an hour. And we had to do that in one sitting with no breaks. So, you know, contrast that to this other study that I was able to participate in, the informed consent may have actually been the same length, but I was able to consume the content over much shorter periods of time. And I remember consuming that content over a couple of days, you know, in my free time throughout those days, as opposed to having to sit down in one meeting, you know, in an hour and a half or, or however long it is and have someone literally read every word to me. Um, so, you know, just the format of video, the format of small bite-sized pieces of information and being able to consume that information um, in a time that works in my schedule, you know, which is a better, a much better patient experience for me. I'm curious what, how you would think about the way that um, not your knowledge retention compared between those two modalities. Cause obviously there's a convenience factor. That's a major difference between the two, but how, just on your own recollection, like 
how would you rate your knowledge retention between the two approaches? So it's a really hard question for me to answer, and and I'll explain why. One, because I went into this clinical trial being fairly educated on the treatment that I was pursuing. And so I could have, I knew everything that was on that informed consent probably before it was read to me Um, versus this other study, I I had no awareness of the study. I didn't have any idea what they were trying to learn um, before they approached me. So I was starting at two very different places. So it's a hard question to answer. I'm curious uh, from the clinical perspective, when you guys present trials uh, to your patients, do you end up getting very many follow-up questions after the appointments that come directly to you, or do they typically go to the trial coordinators at that point. The main reason why I have that question is kind of um, touching back on that like retention piece and the processing piece. I just think as a patient myself, whenever I'm in an actual appointment, it is such a stressful time for me that I am not going to remember all of the questions that I want to ask or something's going to come up and I'm going to remember a question later on. Um, and I can imagine that would probably happen quite often with clinical trials that are a lot more complex. So I was curious what the process looks like if that those questions typically go to you or if they go to the trial coordinators um, after that very first visit. I've had I've had variable experiences. With, oops, am I mute? No, I'm actually sorry. I've had variable experiences with that um, because uh, it's really I think a lot of it depends on support and then your style in the clinic. So uh my my general workflow is I I do what my old department used to call a warm handoff, where I actually would talk with the patient personally about the study uh, for some time and kind of at least give a very high level overview of it. And that would be a time where people would ask questions. And I feel like what naturally would happen is because I was the one that was sort of presenting the clinical and scientific like reasoning for the study and why it's important. If they had clinical type questions, they would tend to come back and ask me about those either through email or, or my chart or by calling or things like that. That wasn't honestly that common though. Um, the, the, uh, I can't speak to how much they would come back and ask the research coordinators questions. And those would probably be more common because they're more about, logistics, like, do I have to get this test before? Like, when do I have to get it or how long, how often do I come in? That kind of a thing. Um, in my new place, there's a little bit less support. So I'm kind of answering more of more of the questions. And uh, I'd say that it's pretty common that people do come back and ask questions after. Um, because of what you just said, I think the visits can be emotional um, sometimes, especially if it's a, a new diagnosis that, you know, that there's that whole layer on top of it. Um, and so we'll often especially if I sense that there's a lot of other things happening or there's a lot of like kind of mental uh, effort being spent on things other than the trial, I'll tend to kind of introduce the concept and say like, you know, don't answer today. We're going to talk again in a couple of days about this once, you know, things are more clear. It speaks to the advantage of the video too, because it allows you not only is it with your schedule, but if you're not like mentally ready to absorb all that information, then you can also put it off and do it later when you're, when you're mentally ready, I think. Yeah, that was one of the um, reasons why I was so curious about that is like, as a patient, I've rewatched things over and over and over again um, to re-cement them. Um, And if I didn't have that as a resource, I would either not have the information or I would be probably driving the clinical, the the trial team (laughs) nuts trying to uh, get the information in a way that I could um, kind of absorb it on my own time. For me, I think, um, so for the trials that I... uh, handle at work, it's mostly medical oncology trials. So I'm not typically the physician who's introducing the trial, but uh, several of my patients are candidates for trials. And then my colleagues in medical oncology will be the ones to kind of oversee consent enrollment and referral to the coordinators and so forth. But I have experimented quite a bit with non-clinical trial patient education delivery. And so one of the ways that we experimented with deploying this information by video to patients is uh, either before, during, or after uh, the visit with the doctor. So if it's before, I had at times called ahead the day before the consult and just introduced myself. So we're going to meet tomorrow. Um, I'm going to send you videos by text message right now. You can watch them. It's This is a lot of the information we're going to discuss in much more detail tomorrow. But if you want to 
like kind of high level overview, you can watch these videos to prepare. And I generally got really good feedback from patients uh, when I did it that way, because you guys may be uh, able to relate to this, but sometimes for patients, they feel the pressure of you know coming up with a good question kind of on the spot in that moment. It's a pretty intense face-to-face encounter, um, and it can be a bit stilted. And obviously, you're extremely stressed out about this major medical issue. So in a way, priming them with some kind of low-hanging fruit education before the encounter was useful. In other cases, we the patient would come in, they would get uh, their vitals taken and roomed by the MA, and then the MA would introduce the concept of the video. And then while they're waiting for the physician to come in, they get a text message and they can watch the video like literally right before the patient comes in. Uh, and then in the third scenario, we would do the whole clinic visit as we normally would without video. Um, and then at the end of the appointment, I would you know, reference that I'm going to send them a video that's kind of a recap of everything we just talked about. So this wasn't done systematically. I didn't have data. I probably should have put it through the IRB and studied it in a systematic way. It was purely anecdotal because I just created the content myself and was just sharing it with my patients and testing different ways. Um, But I'd love to run a trial where we're testing the three different ways to deploy it. You know, I think in the end, if I had to guess, I would say that there's going to be just different preferences. Different patients are going to have different preferences. Um, and some patients' preference would be against any video at all. I mean, they they just really feel they're very traditional in the way that they want to experience knowledge transfer from their doctors. It has to be face-to-face and, and really that sort of in-person encounter is the most important thing. But for others, like you guys are describing, having access to this asynchronous component where you can go back, review it, uh, in piecemeal, or as each of you said, either in piecemeal or kind of over and over uh, multiple times, um, some patients have a preference for that. So I'm not sure a trial would really teach us the best way to do it. I think it, the best way is probably to layer it and to give patients access to everything. I'm very yeah. curious in your three kind of different ways that you delivered the videos, just anecdotally, I know you said you didn't have like a way to track the data, but anecdotally, did you have one way that was preferred over the other? Like as a patient, I can imagine the day before I would have loved that experience. Um, But I'm curious if you had any other feedback from other patients. That was the highest rated anecdotally, (laughs) but it also requires the highest level of organization on the part of the physician, which I don't always have in clinic, you know, scanning my schedule for the next day. And then there's just sort of competing things for my time, like getting home to my wife and kids and stuff. So I just don't have it built into my day um, as much of a routine, but that was definitely the way that patients seem to respond the best to. Um, So I'm trying to think of a way to standardize that within the workflow of our clinic, whether it's it's always going to be me or perhaps it's my MA who's at the end of her day going through the schedule for tomorrow. Um, but in the end, it's extremely important that the content is right. You know, So we don't want to send a post-mastectomy patient education video to a woman who had a lumpectomy. It's going to destroy our credibility and be confusing to them. Um, so leaving those kinds of curation decisions around which content is most relevant to a patient to an MA has pitfalls potentially too. So um, these are the challenges. There isn't um, a way to scale this yet uh, in in a way that's like intelligent enough um, to have it work seamlessly. It still needs the human touch. Um, So I think that's that's what makes it useful and important to patients, and we can't get around that. I'll just uh, I'll just add that the human touch piece that you mentioned. I know when you initially said it, that is really what stood out to me. Of like, oh, I would have loved if my doctor did that. Is because it's the act of your doctor calling the day before instead of like a scheduler or somebody that you're used to hearing getting a phone call from. It is a very human interaction to deliver that information. And I don't know what it is about the like action of it, but it it feels personalized um, in a way that um, just like consuming that content on your own. Um, 
I think it would be beneficial either way to get it the day before. Uh, but the way that you delivered it, um, just even hearing that just as a patient triggered for me of like, wow, that's like a really personal connection and would build rapport for me before I walked in the door. Even if it was like a 30 second phone call, it was, wow, they had the time to take out of their day to make this phone call. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that perspective. I think that's really, that's really helpful. You know, I thought back through my own experience and thought about the times where I felt like something like primer would be, would have been really beneficial. And one of those times was, you know, I, I went when I could, I, I, part of my uh, cancer treatment did happen over COVID. So a lot of these appointments I had to go to by myself and sure there was that necessity to deliver the information to other people in my family who weren't able to be at the visit. But there were many times where my husband and I would go to the same appointment and we would literally walk out and we would get in the car and we each heard, we were in the same room. We each heard two completely different things. And what I would have given at times to have been able to pull something up that would have helped each of us rehear what was heard in that room. I mean, that that would have been pretty priceless for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think this stuff is like, it's relative. What's funny. I think what, what comes out of of both of your comments is that, um, you know, this stuff is, uh, relatively low hanging fruit, I think to, to make a big impact on people's, um, quality of life just through education. I just noticed that when people get more educated on the topic, they tend to be more comfortable and seem to be more engaged. But then also I think that people's impression of the center and the care that they give, um, it, you know, I think everyone wants highly satisfied patients. We've had an episode on that as well and all those metrics that none of the doctors like, but this is a way that, that people are very satisfied with their care. Right. And I think that, um, despite that, it does remain somewhat challenging to implement this stuff in, in, within a clinical workflow. Um, certainly the videos help. I love the, the asynchronous idea. I love the idea of sending before as kind of like a welcome to our clinic. Here's what you'll go through tomorrow and here's how it fits into your care. And that's really good. We, we had a meeting last week with our, the nurse navigators in our breast uh, cancer center. So when, when women who were taking care for breast cancer have a biopsy that shows cancer, they have an introductory meeting with the surgeon and they're receiving a, a binder of a lot of different educational materials. And so one idea we had and that we're going to deploy in the next week or two is having a sheet in there that just has QR codes with icons to different kinds of patients. So one uh, video just on breast anatomy, because actually that's pretty important for women with breast cancer, just understanding you know, where is this problem and what are the other organs in the area? What am I worried about? And that becomes pretty intuitive once you understand the anatomy. So we have a video on that and different kinds of surgical options, you know, chemotherapy, what's the role of chemotherapy, curative versus palliative, and uh, the role of radiation, but but basically delivering it to them as QR codes that they could scan. Um, so the way I was thinking about it as I was kind of preparing for today's discussion is it almost is like there's a pyramid or some kind of shape. I'm not sure what the right analogy is, but ranging and the spectrum ranges from uh, most passive to most direct. And so uh, on the most sort of invasive and direct would be like a text message that you didn't opt into and just appears on your phone without you even knowing it. Um, that's a message like here's some content that you can receive. And then um, the most passive would just be like have it on your hospital website and you can kind of in passing tell people. So I'm curious to hear your perspectives like what what preferences, if any, would you have in terms of receiving that content? Um, are, would you guys be offended by receiving content that's deployed to you like as invasive as a text message? Or would you prefer to just be directed so you could passively go and view it on the website at your leisure? How do you think about that? For me, I would definitely want an opt-in um, type of experience because there's um, I am opted into one of my cancer centers. Um, cause what I have is so rare. I have multiple centers and one of them, I, if those pushed to my phone, it would be obnoxious. And I would constantly, cause they send both appointment reminders. And then they also send like 
we're hosting this thing on the event today or on site today, this event that I really don't have any interest in. Um, and so I think text message for me, like I really want that to mostly be appointment related. So I want it to like remind me about appointments or kind of as you described, like right before an appointment, maybe deliver some content. And right after I wouldn't want this like trickle feed of information through text message. Um, but also kind of, I wouldn't want it to go as far as on the website. I hate, I despise trying to find information on um, hospital websites, cancer center, like so generalized and it's so hard to find what you're looking for. That That is my last place I will look. I will look on Instagram. I'll look on YouTube. I will look everywhere else before I really dive into a site like that. So um, maybe I really liked your idea about the QR codes of like a pamphlet that you can pull away with something that's got uh, access to resources like that versus like a website that I have to, I have to go to directly. Yeah, I think I would agree. I um, would probably shy away from those more passive engagements. Like I don't see myself going to a cancer center's website to find information. I think about my own case and the various centers that I've been a part of, and I'm not sure that I've ever gone to those pages other than perhaps to find a doctor's information, um, con- you know, contact information or something like that. Uh, so I don't know that that content would re- reach me there, honestly. Um, and you know, I would agree. For for me, text or email is going to be the best experience and the best way um, to reach me. But you know, to what Katie said, um, I do feel like there are some boundaries around the type of information that I want to receive electronically. And so I do think an opt-in is really, really important there. Yeah. Kind of going back to that website uh, piece that you mentioned, Julia, I was um, trying to think of, I mean, I visited um, all my cancer centers websites and kind of tried to look for information there, but I'm trying to think of the ones that I hit most often and where I ended up the number one place that I ended up looking on sites for information was actually when I had my liver resection done, I could not find any information to tell me what to expect. Um, but the only things I could find did come from different hospital websites that, um, did liver resections, but it was text-based, very, very generic. And it was really, really hard for me to try to get any information about that. So I, after I, I actually ended up going to YouTube and watched them perform (laughs) a liver resection a couple of times to try to get an idea of what it was going to be like. And then after I had mine done, I created a video of what it was like for me as a patient so that I could leave that behind for other patients. But kind of going back to what you said, like it was a Google search that took me to those sites, um, but I wouldn't have gone to the pages themselves. And then it didn't have the useful information that I wanted, but kind of the videos that you are talking about, David, of like the, um, kind of very simple descriptions and um, illustrations. I've checked out some of your videos before. Like those are kind of the information that I was looking for um, to help me out in the process, but there just wasn't a really great place to find it. That video that you did, I think we should link to it for sure. Cause it's, it's very, very popular and it's really well done. And I think what's, what's unique about it um, even beyond what I think, um, David, what you're doing is that it gives a, a patient perspective of what it was like to go through the procedure. With, there's just n- nothing like that out there that I've seen. Um, just talking about uh, I, you know, what you felt and how it felt for you. And, and, and I think that, um, it's, it's a nice additional perspective because I do think we give really good information about risks of procedures and what might happen. And we can even give, you know, like some ballpark number of how likely we think it might be to happen, but it's just very, it's a different perspective than like, I had this and here's what I felt like in a, in very practical terms, like day to day kind of a thing. Katie, I think what you're providing is like the problem we have now is we just have, we're flooded with content. Um, and there's content everywhere, but I think what we're seeking in these moments is authenticity. You, what you are turned off by, I think, 
and what the doctors are turned off by on their own websites is it's completely whitewashed. It's useless information. And despite our best efforts to make it more relevant and applicable to our own patients, the the hospitals are sort of unwilling to customize them to the preferences of the physicians. And in, in doing so, they make it basically useless to patients. So what other patients are looking for from advocates like you and what I think my patients and others are looking for from doctor creators like, like us is just authenticity. It doesn't need to be like the most perfectly polished piece of content, but if it rings true, if it seems credible, if this person appears to have you know done this once or twice before and they can speak from experience, then um, you're willing to overlook uh, being a bit rough around the edges because there is a lot of just raw authenticity that delivers the value in that. And that's sort of what has kept me going is that you know I'm not a, an, a graphic artist or a designer. I have no background in, in creating software or tech or anything, but um, I just I do believe that creating just simple, useful educational videos is delivering value for patients. That's actually, I'm going to take, take what you said and use it as a segue because it's one of the questions I had. I know that your videos for Primer are now sort of embedded institutionally, meaning that like these are mainly, correct me if I'm wrong, but these are mainly being used in the context of someone who's in a clinic, seeing a doctor already, considering potentially enrolling in clinical trial. This video is used to educate them in that setting. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's more more recent use case, but that is how, um, like as a business, that's sort of where we're building now is we're creating content that's unique to a specific clinical trial, and then it gets embedded onto the the home website for uh, that site, that institution that's enrolling on that trial. Um, but for cooperative group trials, it's going to go on the landing page. Like for an NRG study, it's going to be right there on the landing page so that patients, if they go through a Google search to try to find information on that trial, they'll land at that page, which historically had just linked out to clinicaltrials.gov. And then Katie, you spoke to the problems we all have with that um, website. But we'll just post uh, the series of videos. So if patients want to go through all the educational content, it's just right there on the website. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's, that's great and, and a very useful tool. And I, like I said before, I'll potentially at some point be reaching out for my own trial video when we start doing trials <laughs> again. But, but I think one question that I always have on this topic is more broadly, um, like, you know, we all are now talking about fighting this battle of misinformation online and things like that. And I guess my, my question, I guess, for all three of you would be, um, do, do you feel like that these videos have a role there, not for a patient who already is diagnosed, established in a clinic at the point they're hearing about a trial, they're kind of far past, you know, they've just gotten the news of the diagnosis. Um, I know both Katie and Julie, you have talked about your experience of seeking information at the time that you were diagnosed kind of on your own. Do you feel like there's a niche or can, can these videos play a role there in sort of trying to combat misinformation? Because I think, like I said, it's a concern we all have, but I haven't heard a lot of actionable things that we can do to fight it. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or. I think it, I don't know, in my opinion, it kind of depends. Um, like, I think these videos are very, very useful from a educational perspective. Um, like I even clicked through some of the videos. So I like learned about colon cancer and was like, I've heard all those terms a million times. It's really cool to see like the graphics and the images of where it's all laid out and how it's described. Um, so it was very good from a educational perspective and that living on either institution sites or on credible sites that I know are credible and I know it's coming from a doctor helps from, I feel like it's reliable information. Um, I think if you try to approach topics of trying to disprove some of the like misinformation out there, you get into um, a little bit muddy waters of you're going to turn some people off and some people aren't going to trust you as a resource anymore um, because you're like directly attacking something that they've heard. Um, I do think that it's really important to address some of those things, but I think more of when I think of that approach, I think of more from like a high level of delivering credible information is a really good way to start. And then um, 
maybe approaching some of those topics over time, but I think you have to be really careful about how you deliver those. Yeah. I, I think in, from my perspective, the most important thing is to establish yourself as a trusted resource. And that may not mean dispelling myths right off the bat. Um, and I, I think, you know, making sure that you're presenting information in a way that can be digested at such a vulnerable and emotional time. Um, and, you know, making sure that however you're distributing this information, that it's from a trusted resource. And then like Katie said, you know, over time, you can go deeper into some of some of these um, more contentious topics. That makes sense. My approach to try to, I, I think, Julie, you're keying on something that's pretty important, which is to like, not overstate or oversell a, tr a trial, which is just an awkward thing to do for a, a, I don't think, I don't know any colleagues who do that, but almost every patient would be turned off by that, I think. Um, so when we create the content, we're trying to really just build off a foundation of like ironclad facts, you know, like defining th this is the disease entity we're talking about. This is the kind of stage category that we're talking about. This is the standard of care. Currently, a key question in the standard of care is X. In this trial, we are going to address question X by testing Y or Z. Um, and then if you enroll in the trial, these are the things that we'll um, be looking at in follow-up. Um, and then if you need more information, here's links to other resources. So we try to keep it like, like very tight and, and very ironclad so that we're not getting out over our skis, making statements or claims that are, are not defensible. Um, and one thing that I would add that just has been really reassuring to me is even when I'm working on trials that have industry support. There's a total firewall between the industry sponsors and the PIs who are running the trial. Like I've, I've never even had a whiff of uh, any crossover in terms of the creation of the content. So the content that we're creating is purely the product of um, like the script writing that I do along with the PI and then patient advocates. Um, that's it. No one from industry even sees it until it's IRB approved. So um, that's just been a useful way to keep arm's length from having any sort of, you know, perverse incentive from industry reaching into the trial to build any sort of coercive element into the content, which would look and feel very dystopian, I think we would all agree. So um, we're able to, I mean, the way the current system works is that it, there's a lot of protections against that. And I've been very reassured just in working with PIs and sponsors that that's um, pretty, pretty widely understood. I think one thing that's really important and really can help in that area too is, um, and it's not addressing it in videos directly, um, but it's, I know that there's a lot of hesitancy from patients on clinical trials, because I know there's this kind of misconception of like, I mean, I've heard it a couple of times of like, I don't want to be a lab rat. <laughs> That's a, it's a terrible, terrible, like, um, I guess like stereotype that has been linked with clinical trials. Um, but I know for me, like, I mean, once you get a cancer diagnosis, before that point, there's probably not any chances you've really interacted with very many clinical trials. And so all you hear is what's around you. And so um, I think the important parts are being educated on what a clinical trial is and that um, learning about it helps you understand that it's really just, it's beneficial to patients in many ways. Um, and it's not kind of like usually first time trials. I mean, there definitely are like first in human trials, but uh, that's usually not the first trial that many patients are coming across. And 
I think patient stories are one of the really big key factors there that maybe that's not built into a video of a trial, but it's built into building the rapport. I know for me, I was much more comfortable with trials and actually excited to hear and look into trials. When I connected with other patients who had been in them, I'd seen their success stories. And I'll say even even though clinicaltrials.gov is less than ideal, the NIH has updated their website in some of their um, trials for like um, urologic oncology or some of the different sites for uh, the specific specialties will list the um, trials and they'll have a video describing what the trial is about by the um, private investigator and then primary investigator. I probably said that completely wrong. I don't know which it is. Principal. Principal. Okay. (laughs) Missed it both times. (laughs) Um, But the... They'll have a video description of that, but they also have a trials page that I'm actually highlighted in one of the the sections there that has the patient stories. And you can see patients, like real patients and their vulnerable stories of like, hey, this is what I went through. Like, this was what my response was. And it's um, encouraging to not hear that being talked about and presented of like this patient had a complete response, but being able to see the patients themselves describe their stories and what their life is like, like because they had a complete response. You go. Well, I was going to, I wanted to jump in and just add, I think that what's, this is something that I am super interested in. And I, I sent you all that, that sort of paper that was a survey of a, of a technology study that was done in radiation oncology. It's the first author is Shumway and the, it's uh, Dr. Jagsey's uh, group in, in Michigan that had done this. And, and that paper touches a little bit uh, further out than kind of what you were just talking on. How I think just as a general public, people tend to have kind of preconceived ideas about trials. Um, you you did touch on the whole issue with trials disparities, and there's a trust issue there with a lot of groups of people. But separate from all of that, I think in general, the general public does think that when you are uh, there are there is a high risk that they believe that the trial stands to benefit them greatly because they'd have access to something. And I usually spend a lot of time telling patients that a lot of trials turn out not to be positive, meaning that we don't know the answer to the question we're asking, and that's why we do it. Um, and I did want to point out, David, for your video that you sent us as an example for this, the art trial, that's uh, hopefully I can talk about this. I don't know if it's like, if there's any secrets there. It's, is it out in? Yeah, it's IRB approved. It's out. Yeah, go for um, it. This is, but this is just a trial of, of, of a TZO or immunotherapy and then plus or minus SBRT, mm-hmm. which is a very similar design as a lot of studies that are kind of running now. But I thought it does a great job of explaining what the question is, uh, why, why it's running the study and, and, you know, and, and what the potential upside there is. So I thought that was what stuck out to me as being really excellent about your video, because I know that sometimes it's a struggle to explain that in clinic or go up against that preconceived notion, I think. Yeah, I I think, well, thanks for saying that. Appreciate it. That was with a lot of help from patient advocates. So kudos to them. Um, But Katie, just to uh, dovetail and just reaffirm something that you mentioned in terms of uh, patient testimonials, one of um, one of the docs I'm working with on another trial called Radicals um, is Raina McKay, and she's at UCSD. Um, and one of the the like most potent and powerful recruitment elements that she's experienced has been um, patient testimonials that got picked up by major channels. I think Euro today, URO, not EURO. Um, and so it has a massive distribution. And there were a couple of patients who talked about their experience on that trial. And Dr. McKay just started getting cold calls from patients all over the West Coast who were interested in um, enrolling on the trial after hearing from patients. So I think whatever we're doing with um, building algorithm-based search mechanism, matching patients based on data with eligible trials and building content and layering education, uh, just hearing from patients themselves about how they did on a trial and what their story was, I think is more powerful than any of that. So I would just encourage you guys to continue with your advocacy because it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I, I even think about my own experience in looking for trials. And I almost, I don't think I realized it until I even am reflecting on it right now. Um, but I think I used other sarcoma patients as kind of a funnel to help me weed out trials and narrow the list down. 
considerably. Um, and so for me as a patient, other patients have always been my one of my top resources for information. Yeah. I keep a I, I keep a list actually of people that are willing to talk to other patients for different diseases. Um even even outside of the context of talking about a trial because it's just one of the most helpful things. Yeah. Actually you, you connected me with someone once who um needed to talk to another patient and actually, You're on my list. <laughs> I still talk I I've, I've talked to her since then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a it's a good strategy in general. Yeah. Great. Yeah. We're coming close to the end of our time here. Does anyone have anything else to add? This has been a great discussion. I think, um, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this topic and I hope we keep getting better at it. I would just say, keep keep doing what you guys are doing. Um, Katie, I'm especially excited to see where you go with what you're building and let me know if I can help in any way. I'm here. You're muted. I'm muted, sorry guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I same thing. I'm... Uh, I love the videos that you're creating and that's something that like I want to help incorporate into the the clinical trial stuff that I'm I'm building sometimes so let's definitely uh connect on that too. Great. Sounds good. All right, well thank you all for for joining on. I think this was a great discussion. Definitely more to come on this topic for sure. I'm uh, excited to watch everyone's work as they progress and and kind of go from there. Uh thanks again for everyone come on. Uh, have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having us. Bye. Take care guys.